This episode of New Politics was released on the 11th of February, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, the first week of Federal Parliament for 2023, Lydia Thorpe leaves the Australian Greens, and the slight whisper of change on Peter Dutton's leadership. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, American Congressman George Santos's resume coach. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription, but whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. Parliament has returned for the year and is pretty much where it left off from last year where the government is keen to implement its agenda, the opposition is trying to make itself relevant and everyone else is trying to influence all the political outcomes. There's been a great deal of focus on the voice to Parliament in the lead up to the first week of parliamentary sittings but there's a whole lot more that's in the spotlight. There's the Robo-Debt Royal Commission, there's the economy, there's the reform of Medicare, there's an interest rate rise with no end in sight the usual cost of living issues that keep coming up, and immigration detention has also made a comeback. So there's no end to all the issues coming up in this parliamentary year. It's going to be a big parliamentary year. A lot of it will be trying to undo the damage done from the last nine years of corruption and incompetence. A lot of it, there will be a new government finding its way, and there's going to be blunders, there's going to be mistakes, there's going to be people overstepping their mark, there's going to be people understepping their mark. We've already seen a little bit of this already. There are some very superb people in the Labor front bench. We've already seen this, but not everybody can be a star performer and things can happen. There's a few booby traps, I guess, left by the last parliament. I think to the parliament and we'll discuss this in a little bit, the Parliament's power balance has changed, making things maybe a little bit harder for the government to get its agenda through. That's yet to be seen. The press getting all excited about, oh, now they've got other people to negotiate who aren't as amenable to the government's policy is just really journalists looking for something to do rather than, I think, a a fair summing up of the situation. It could be that there are difficulties in the the government getting its agenda through, and that's fine. I'm I'm not saying it won't happen, but I don't think that it's going to be quite as obstructive as what's being claimed. Now, the voice to parliament, that's featured quite strongly so far this year, and it's likely to continue featuring up until the time that a referendum takes place. And for me, this shouldn't be the divisive issue that the Coalition keeps trying to turn it into, and it's quite a simple proposition, and it's what the overwhelming majority of Indigenous people have asked for. But there's always a whole lot of issues that keep developing in politics, and I think that if there's less focus on the voice of Parliament so it can proceed without the hysteria coming in from people such as Peter Dutton, Sky News, Jacinta Price or Warren Mundine, it's actually got a much better chance of success. And 
For all of these people, without question, it's just a lot of hot air and these people are opposing the voice of Parliament just for the sake of opposing. They're not proposing any alternatives or really outlining what their concerns are. Their main issue seems to be it's a constitutional change supported by Labor, so therefore they have to oppose it. And there are splits that are starting to appear within the coalition. The Liberal Party Senator, Andrew Bragg, he's announced that the voice of Parliament isn't a Labor project, it's an Australian project. And he's also said that it's a liberal solution to reconciliation. So he's also announced that he's going to publicly lobby Peter Dutton to support the voice of parliament. And perhaps the more sensible people within the Liberal Party are starting to see the errors of their ways. Many opinion polls are showing that many people are supportive of the voice to parliament and, and still are, despite all the negative rhetoric from Peter Dutton and the Conservatives over the past few months. And My feeling is that this will probably follow what happened with the same-sex marriage plebiscite from 2017, where despite the destructive noises coming in from Conservatives at that time, the vote was still successful. The other issue is that people such as Peter Dutton, Jacinda Price and Warren Mundine, they're actually such poor communicators and poor advocates for the No campaign. It's not actually clear what they're trying to put out, aside from just the vote No process, and it's not clear who they'll attract to their campaign anyway, except for the people who were going to vote no in the first place. The trouble is is that the only viable alternatives are fairly abhorrent either to the Liberal Party or to the general public. So you oppose it because, well, it doesn't go far enough, doesn't play to the base that uh, Dutton's aiming at. We should be looking at treaty first, aren't words you're going to hear from Peter Dutton in any short-term or even long-term. And so if he defeats it on that, he'll then be pretty much bound to get a treaty going. And there's no way that the Liberal Party would want that. The other way, of course, is to absolutely oppose it on the grounds that you get the sense that some people on that side want to do but can't because it's racist to oppose this. And there there are no non-racist arguments to say no to if that if that makes sense any thinking person would agree that indigenous community needs a strong say in parliament as an advisory body as as a symbolic body as a practical body to make sure that indigenous affairs are at least considered in policy making to oppose that suggests that you value indigenous voices and indigenous people less than others i think even Pauline Hanson is being careful in not trying to project that. Peter Dutton on the centre-right Liberal Party doesn't want to be caught out like that. He's caught between a rock and a hard place. He doesn't have a lot to say. If it was me, if I was advising him, I would probably say support the voice but then pick at the details when it's going in and speak to Indigenous voices, not just Warren Mundine and Jacinta Price, not just Ken Wyatt, but Noel Pearson. Speak to prominent Indigenous leaders from right across the board to try and work out a viable way you can control the voice rather than trying to stop it without really trying to stop it because you don't want to be seen as being racist. He's painted himself into a corner that will be very, very difficult to extricate himself from. Some of our listeners couldn't get enough of the Robo-Debt Royal Commission, which we think is one of the biggest scandals ever in Australia's political history. We've said this quite a few times before. And they've asked us, well, why is it so quiet this week? Now, there has been a short break in the hearings and 
that have been taking place at the Royal Commission in Brisbane and it's starting up again on February the 20th and just because the Commission is having a short break that doesn't mean that the issue isn't being raised in Parliament. Here's Bill Shorten calling out the scheme and suggesting that the Minister responsible, Alan Tudge, is a human blame factory. A member for Aston acknowledged that, one, he was responsible for the administration of the robo-debt scheme between February 2016 and December 2017. Two, he knew that robo-debt produced inaccurate debt notices. Three, he did not think to raise questions about the legality of the scheme for the duration of his time as the Minister. Four, he requested the personal files of 52 Centrelink recipients who had complained in the media in the period between Christmas 2016 and January 2017. Five, he did think, however, to get legal advice about accessing the personal files of the 52 public complainants as opposed to seeking advice as to the lawfulness of the whole scheme. Now, the member for Aston did pay forensic attention to people complaining about the scheme, but never the complaints. He investigated the messengers, but never the message. Furthermore, when the minister was asked about his responsibility, he shifted responsibilities for the scheme to the former Prime Minister, former Treasurer, former Finance Minister for prioritising finding savings. The Minister, when he was asked about responsibility, made it clear that he blamed the ERC. He made it clear that he blamed senior public servants. It wasn't his fault that he didn't know about the illegality. Instead, he said senior public servants should have told him, including one who is now deceased. He said that he had no visibility about the scheme when it was brought to Cabinet, and he said that the issues of current policy responsibility were the matter for the former Social Services Minister. At different times, not only did he blame most of his current Cabinet colleagues, he then blamed the left-wing media, he then blamed previous Labor governments. The human blame factory here also blamed the complainants of the scheme. The last word should be left to his former media adviser, who put it better than most. The Minister requested the file of every person who appeared in the media in order to make other victims think twice before coming forward. What a fine specimen of coalition ministerial responsibility. And as a result of all of this, Alan Tudge has announced that he'll be resigning from politics. And if I was actually Alan Tudge, I'd be resigning from politics as well. This is going to be a political gift that just keeps on giving for the federal government. There's been so much to unpack here and so much material coming through. And of course, there's the robo-debt scandal itself, which resulted in over 2,000 suicides. It created untold misery and stress for almost 400,000 people. And it ended up costing the government $1.8 billion in settlement costs. So aside from these big issues, there's also the role of the right-wing media. There's also the role of consultants such as PricewaterhouseCoopers, which received almost a million dollars to produce a report which was never completed and never delivered. Now, David, in my other line of work, I produce and prepare reports for different government agencies and departments. And if I don't present and prepare the report, well, I don't get paid. So if PricewaterhouseCoopers could contact me and let me know how you can not complete a report and still get paid for it, well, I'd really like to know about that because that seems like a pretty good income stream. Aside from that, there have been suggestions that in addition to the RoboDebt Royal Commission, there should also be a Royal Commission into the mainstream media in Australia, and there have been calls for this over the past four or five years, and that's mainly spearheaded by former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. And there's also a suggestion or a request that there should be a Royal Commission into the role of external consultants, such as PricewaterhouseCoopers, KPMG, EY, McKinsey, because it seems like the taxpayer is not getting value for money here, and there might be even bigger scandals going on there as well. 
I just want to say I've got a whole bookshelf full of unstarted reports. Anyone is welcome to just deposit $250 million into my account and I'll keep not writing these things for the rest of my life. The other thing too is that we have a public service that was meant to do this stuff. Now, it, it is appropriate from time to time for the public service to call in outside experts on technical issues that you don't know about. Government debt collection, for example, is something that the government should know about, should know how to do, should know, should have procedures in place, should be legally and ethically set up. And yet PwC gets several million dollars to essentially not do anything. It's a failure of privatisation. Oh, most definitely. But also a lot of these companies are receiving a lot of support from the, the taxpayer and from the government, and sure, they're producing reports, or maybe in this case, they're not producing reports, but over the past 16 years, it's been around $4 billion that has gone out to all of these external consultants but from the federal government, and that's not including state governments, but that just seems to be a lot of money going out to these private consultants. It'd be interesting to look at party donations, party members, links to government, you know, how do these people know each other, the procedures as to what gets them hired, all of that. It's clearly a practice that has to be shut down and rebuilt from the bottom because it hasn't worked at all in, in this case. And for 2,000 people, it was fatal. And the economy also featured strongly during the week. Interest rates went up and it's the ninth rate rise since early 2020 when the Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Lowe, he said that interest rates were locked in until 2024. So he got that one quite wrong. And whenever interest rates go up, it's always massive news in the media. So it's something that the Labor government has to manage politically, but so far it's not affecting the government in the polls. But we do have to remember that the national economy isn't just about interest rates. There's other issues to indicate that the economy is not travelling so badly. The share markets are going up. Unemployment rate is still low. Inflation is still a little bit high, but it seems to have stabilised. Consumer confidence is still pretty strong. Business confidence has dropped off a little bit. But just doesn't seem like there's enough to attack the government on the economy at the moment. So, of course, the opposition has decided to attack the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, for writing an essay on economics, and we discussed this on New Politics last week. Now, Treasurers do need to have an underpinning economic philosophy that directs their actions with the national finances, even if it's something like the lifters and leaners narrative that was used by Joe Hockey when he was Treasurer back in 2014. So, admittedly, that was a bit thin, but it was still something. But we want to see politics as a contest of ideas and assess where the political leaders want to direct the country. Now, an essay on economics, that might not be of interest to everyone out there in the, in the electorate, but these are the discussion points that we need to see. And hearing people like Paul Fletcher and Peter Dutton attack the government for outlining their ideas to the community, it just means that they're quite happy to remain irrelevant and just keep shouting from the sidelines. It's easy to oppose. It's hard to build. They've discovered this the hard way. And certainly I don't think Jim Chalmers shouldn't be held up to scrutiny and criticism. Some of his ideas may not be feasible. Some of them may need much more scrutiny before they're applied. Some of them hopefully will be good. <laughs> so it's okay to enter into the public debate on this and even to give alternatives. Perhaps they think that the private government doesn't go far enough, even though we've seen how well, that doesn't work. There's an argument there. Maybe they think that the economy shouldn't be changed too quickly because it will cause too much 
short-term difficulties for average economic users. Again, we can't know that, but they're not arguing any of these relatively simple concepts, uh, let alone more complex ones he, he brought up. If they want to be taken seriously, they either have to engage with it or improve on it because derailing it won't work. And they seem to know this. And looking like a, a group of complainers is not going to do them any good at all. An offshore immigration detention was also in the spotlight this week, and it seems like a change of government hasn't really seen much of a change of policy, with the government extending the contracts for the Immigration Detention Centre in the island of Nauru and failing to abolish offshore processing and temporary protection visas. Now, during the election campaign in 2022, Anthony Albanese did say that it was possible to be strong on borders without being weak on humanity. And that's something that was repeated by the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, this week. Now, the Labor government can't just say that it's going to humanise the immigration detention system, but then do exactly the same as the previous government. And during the week, the Iranian journalist, Beruz Buchani, and he was in Australian immigration detention for six years, first of all on Christmas Island and then transferred to Manus Island under the ridiculous Pacific Solution Plan set up by the Labor government at the time in 2013 until he was granted residency in New Zealand in 2020. And once again, New Zealand provides an example of how to be strong on borders without being weak on humanity. And during the time he was in Australian immigration detention, the Home Affairs Minister at the time, Peter Dutton, he said that Buchani would never set foot in Australia. So he must have been a little bit surprised when Buchani was actually in Parliament House during the week to address a group of federal MPs and journalists. And Buchani has called for a Royal Commission into the treatment of asylum seekers and detention centres in Australia. And I think this has been a hopeless and terrible era in Australian politics for all of these issues. Now, we've got that situation where the Coalition always seeks an opportunity in human misery and asylum seekers. And it's been an issue that they've exploited for political gain ever since the late 1990s, and Labor just wants the issue to go away and disappear. So it probably won't be setting up a Royal Commission into immigration detention centres, even though a Royal Commission seems to be the flavour of the month at the moment. So it's a political issue that should be dealt with in a humanitarian way, but for as long as we've got this schism between the two major parties, one side wanting to exploit the issue and the other side lacking the courage to do something about it, it looks like it's an issue that's here to stay for the long term. I'm appalled at the whole contract renewal. They had the opportunity to restart. And I've seen all kinds of justifications and, and the staunch Labor supporters are going to come in and tell me that I'm absolutely wrong and I shouldn't at all criticise Labor because they're much better than the coalition. In many cases, they are much better than the coalition. But in this case, I'm struggling to see what they're doing except extending a terrible thing. Now, I know that it's not simple, that we can't just let everybody in, as it were, even though we signed an agreement back in 1948 that we would let everybody in. And one of the underlying themes is that it's all right if it's Europeans, but if it's from Africa or Asia or the Middle East or presumably South America, we're not as interested in taking refugees. Now, there's a humanitarian crisis in Turkey and uh, Syria as we speak, but the point is, is that we have a moral obligation as a citizen of the world to look after refugees and not treat them like dirt. And I know that it's a discouragement and a disincentive to come to Australia, but you only come to Australia when everywhere else is full because we're 
at the end of the world for most of it. And if we're not at the end of the world, shouldn't we be helping our neighbours? There's a better solution, if only because there has to be a better solution. But putting them onto essentially concentration camps out in the middle of nowhere helps nobody, least of all them and then second least of all us. So I hope that Labor can work something out and get the contractors out of this awful contract and set things up properly. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. Senator Lydia Thorpe has resigned from the Australian Greens and will sit on the crossbench as an independent senator. So she's in the Senate for at least another five years and she decided to resign when it became clear that the Greens were going to support the Yes campaign on the voice to Parliament. Thorpe felt that it was more important to have a treaty first, but whatever the outcome is here, it's probably worked out best for both parties. The Greens can campaign on the Yes vote. And Lydia Thorpe can campaign against it if she wishes to and then pursue the treaty and promote the black sovereignty movement. Now, when you take Australia's history into account, European invasion and settlement after 1788 and federation after 1901, there is no treaty with any Indigenous groups in Australia. And so many other countries have got treaties with their First Nations people. The Treaty of Waitangi in New Zealand, that was first agreed to in 1840. And That's not to say that everything went well in New Zealand after the treaty, but at least the treaty was in place. But 183 years later, Australia is still resisting this process. Now, there should be a treaty if this is the wishes of First Nations people, and it's pretty obvious that many people do. It's difficult to know what the results will be from Thorpe's resignation from the Australian Greens as far as the treaty is concerned, but in the Senate... She will now become another senator the government will need to negotiate with if they want to have their legislation passed by the Senate. So it could give her some more control in the Senate to achieve these agendas, but on the other hand, it might not. So I think at this stage, it's just very difficult to see what the outcome will be here. It's very hard to be elected as an independent senator. It can be done and it has been done. It's very hard to get the numbers too. Now, Lydia Thorpe is a national figure and she plays well on television, so that's going to help a great deal. She will need to achieve things. Whether she can or not will depend on a whole range of factors, some within her control, some not within her control. The other thing I should say is that I think that it's right that if you do not agree with something fundamental with the party, that you should resign from the party. Of course, the Greens are very upset. In fact, Julian Burnside, who Lydia Thorpe beat out for the Senate seat, said the seat is not hers, the seat is the Greens, so she should step down from the Senate and then the Greens can appoint someone else, presumably number two, which was him. 
Sounds like there might be a bit of vested interest going on there. <laughs> there might be. I'm not questioning Julian Bernstein's integrity or honesty, by the way, but, you know, none of us are perfect. I could imagine he is really upset. She has quit very, very early into the term. And over an issue that was pretty clear that the Greens were going to support. And the other thing too, of course, she has the absolute perfect right to leave a party she's not happy with. And I don't want to be a white man taking away from the voice of an Indigenous woman at all. But I think we can discuss the ideas. And so I support her leaving the party. I do also see the party's argument that they've put all this in, all these resources into her to get elected, and six months later, she leaves the party. It's not a great look for either the party or for Lydia Thorpe in many ways. There will be those who will say, oh, of course, what would you expect? And I've seen a whole lot of really awful things written about her. Uh, I've seen a lot of very supportive things written about her. But ultimately, she's done what she's done, and there will be implications and consequences for her, for the Greens, for the government, and possibly even for the opposition. They may be able to see the opportunity to get a political victory out of this. And again, yeah, we'll just have to see what happens. Now, I'm not going to point out the merits of any of these projects, the Voice to Parliament, the Treaty, the Black Sovereign Movement, Black GST, or reserve positions in Federal Parliament. I think that all of these have got merit and have got different positioning within Indigenous communities. But my attitude is that whatever legal instruments Indigenous Australia wants to enact, that should be facilitated as much as possible. But I'm thinking more about what is achievable politically and my feeling is that whatever's up for grabs, well, that should be taken and then you move on to the next step. And that's not to say that you just accept anything that's on the table, but politics is always based on the art of what is achievable and the art of compromise. And that's probably what the voice of parliament is in the first place. It's a compromise, but it's trying to work on what's achievable. And personally, I don't Mm. think that it goes far enough, but this is what a highly representative group of Indigenous elders and community leaders Mm. have asked for. Now, the National Treaty, that can actually commence tomorrow. Victoria has already started the process of a treaty negotiation, but these take a long time to create and negotiate. The Mabo case, that's 31 years old now, but that took 10 years for the High Court to make its decision. But then that gave rise to the native title system a year or two later. So the wheels of the legal system, they do move slowly, but once the structures are set in place, other things can develop out of that quite quickly. And A a treaty, of course, will mean different things to different people. And I think there is this assumption that Indigenous people have the same political beliefs, but it's the same as everyone else in the community. You can get different perspectives from left, right, centre. We can see that with people such as Senator Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine. But there's also the Black GST group. Now, it's got nothing to do with taxes, but it stands for (laughs) Ending Genocide, Acknowledging Sovereignty and Securing a Peace Treaty. And that includes some of the long-term activists such as Marge Thorpe, Robbie Thorpe, Gary Foley and Robert Corowa. Now, a treaty can be negotiated between First Nations people and a national government. That doesn't actually need a referendum. And the Prime Minister could actually announce next week that he'll commence a treaty process as well, if that's what he wanted to do. But All of this stuff can be concurrent. A treaty will take years to formulate and negotiate. So do you wait until a treaty is completed before you do the voice of parliament or do you get one part out of the way, such as the voice of parliament, while you still focus on the bigger picture of a treaty? So I think there's still quite a few of these issues that need to be thought through quite clearly. It's difficult because you really only get one shot at a referendum what, 25 years since the Republican 
referendum. And even with the death of the Queen, there hasn't been a lot of talk about going back to it anytime soon. You want to get this stuff exactly right. To start with a treaty may have set things back decades and even a century. If the voice doesn't get up this time, it may be the last chance in a lot of people's lifetimes to try and set things right. Now, the voice isn't perfect, but it's good enough. And it can be perfected. As uh, Marsha Langton said, it can be perfected through legislation. You put down the basic framework and then you fix it in the parliament. Peter Dutton's disingenuous, I don't understand and nobody's answering my questions, is being ignored by the look of things. And again, is a dangerous and I think ultimately unsuccessful way to go. I think a voice could work much more quickly towards achieving treaty than starting cold because they've been trying to start cold for since at least 1901 and it hasn't gotten anywhere but this might be the big push forward and i know it's not ideal but it's better than nothing now just going back to lydia thorpe for a minute the departure from the greens has got the potential to work very well for lydia thorpe or fall Hmm. away completely now she's a senator for at least another five years and that's a long time to advance issues such as black sovereignty black gst a treaty or any other issue But there's also a couple of other factors here as well. All of these issues pretty much have to be negotiated through the Parliament of Australia and essentially have to be approved by non-Indigenous communities or non-Indigenous people. Now, I wish it wasn't like that, but this is the system that we have in place. So that means that the art of compromise comes in, which is what being a senator is all about. Now, While Lydia Thorpe was within the Greens, the Labor government needed the support of the Greens in the Senate and one other senator to get their legislation through. And so far, that's been David Pocock. Or, you know, they could actually negotiate with the Lambie team or any other senator, but it just gets more difficult as you move along the political spectrum all the way over to people like Pauline Hanson or or the United Australia Party who are unlikely to support anything that Labor puts up. So previously, Labor had to negotiate with the Greens plus one senator, but that's now changed to negotiate with Greens plus two other senators. And that, of course, could include Lydia Thorpe, but she's now got more tradable options. Now, she could say to the Labor government, well, I'll pass this critical legislation if you announce a start to treaty negotiations and if she can convince David Pocock to support her well I think that's when it starts getting interesting now you can negotiate a lot from a government that's desperate to have its legislation passed as we found out with Senator Brian Harradine when John Howard wanted to get the GST legislation passed and Brian Harradine managed to extract a lot of benefits for Tasmania at the time so I think Lydia Thorpe's position is probably a little bit more powerful than it was within the Greens but it gets back to achieving what's possible in the art of compromise. And if she makes too many demands of the government in exchange for her support, and I'm not saying that they're unreasonable, but it has to be based on what's politically achievable. And the government might end up saying, well, no, we won't negotiate with you. We'll negotiate with Jackie Lambie or somebody else. And in that situation, everyone will end up with 100% of nothing. Again, I can't judge anyone for and won't judge anyone for deciding that their long-held genuine principles mean that they no longer fit in their party. But being an independent is very lonely. And we've seen with Jackie Lambie where she was trying to hold out to, or she was waiting actually to start negotiations when David Pocock was able to deal things through and then Jackie's vote was irrelevant. 
So it becomes quite tricky as an independent, whereas when you're in the party, you can have the arguments with people who you more or less know and more or less trust. And at the end, voters are block, maybe having had a little bit more say. Having said that, if you can't work with those people, then there's no point in being there. The career of Lydia Thorpe will become either quite interesting and she'll go into another term or two as a senator or she'll just fade into irrelevancy and be voted out at the next Senate election that she's due for in five years. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. There's been some internal discussions within the Liberal Party. It's not a full-on discussion yet, just some whispering that we've been hearing. And there's a little bit of disquiet about Peter Dutton and the electoral prospects of the Liberal Party. Now, we've always suggested that Peter Dutton is not the right person to lead the Liberal Party at this point of time in its history. But there was nobody else who wanted the job just after a big election loss, and there was nobody else who was leadership material. But Peter Dutton at the moment is just not getting any traction and it seems that the perceptions of Dutton as the hard man of politics, they're set and they're unlikely to change and this is at a time when the electorate is looking for a softer and less brutal side to politics. And in the latest opinion polls, and that's from News Poll and The Essential Poll, Peter Dutton still has a very high negative rating and that hasn't changed very much at all since he became leader. His approval ratings are still very low and there's also a low vote for the Liberal National Coalition. Now, he did try hard to get some traction with all of that negative talk about the voice to parliament. That's made a marginal difference to opinion polling on the voice to parliament, but not so much difference on his electoral standing. Now, it might be a case where Peter Dutton is just so negative that this is what people expect to see from him, but he's also preaching to the converted or his own conservative backbench that keeps him in that leadership position. And even if he did become a little bit more positive, I don't think anyone would believe him. He's so doer and negative and he hasn't really got much to offer in policy terms. And all he's doing is offering a culture of complaint. Now, that might have worked in the past, but it's not going to work at this time in Australia's political history, I don't think. No, there's too many alternatives to the main information. Peter Dutton as a soft and caring individual is laughable. There's our Twitter friend who who calls themselves Peter Dutton's radiant smile, which really says it all. A cynical and sarcastic approach to the makeover that they tried and lasted about three days before it all fell away. It's really difficult to know what the party to do. As you said, there's no one else. I've said before that I'm not sure that the next Liberal Prime Minister is in Parliament yet. I'm not sure that the next Liberal Prime Minister has uh, graduated from high school yet or university maybe. They may get back in, but again, it'll be in that illegitimate, corrupt, inept mode that will just lead to more of the same rather than someone who tries to shape the country and tries to use the tools of parliament for what they see as the betterment of Australia, not the betterment of themselves. 
if they dump him, it is an acknowledgement that he was the wrong person for the job, which no one wants. If they keep him, he just further demonstrates that he's the wrong person for the job, which no one wants. So again, the theme of today's essays for those watching seems to be rock and a hard place. Well, I guess the other thing in politics is that you have to learn from your lessons. And that was what John Howard managed to do for all of his time in politics. He always learned from his mistakes. He Mm. always learned lessons from previous activities and he never made the same mistake again. But the Liberal Party still doesn't seem to be learning the lessons of the 2022 election and that spate of state elections over the past five or six years. Now, to me, everything that Peter Dutton seems to be doing is wrong. And that's not just my personal opinion. That's what the opinion polls are saying as well. But he's an entirely negative person. And usually the members of a political party do adopt the behaviour of their leader. So that means that everyone in the Liberal Party behaves in this nihilistic and negative way. And he's also doing some pretty bizarre things. Now, here he is claiming that the Liberal Party is a party of working class people. Now, we'll continue to put pressure on the government because we are the party of families, we are the party of small business, and we are the parties of the Australian working class. We are the parties that will inevitably have to clean up Labor's mess when we come back into government, and we will provide every support to families, to small businesses, and most importantly to working families right across the country. And that took everyone by surprise. And I'm sure that back in the Liberal Party room, they would have been saying, no, Pete, that's not us. That's the Labor Party that represents working class people. We are the ones who reduced penalty rates. We're the ones who kept wages down for almost a decade. We're the ones who implemented robo-debt. We're the ones that kick into the poor and get our support from big business. That's that's who we are. We're not the party of working class people. But the, the waiter at the club was working class. He knew him. And the guy who parked the car when he got there was working class. Well, there you go. Therefore, they do represent working class people after all. But generally, like overall, his performance on The Voice of Parliament has been poor politically. It's being revealed that he had lots of meetings with different people about The Voice of Parliament. Five meetings with Anthony Albanese, one with Megan Davis, and she's an international human rights lawyer, and she explained the legalities of the voice to parliament to Peter Dutton. Ken White presented twice to him in Cabinet when Peter Dutton was in government, and also Peter Dutton teleconferenced through to a meeting in Canberra with the government, and he couldn't attend because he went off to the funeral of George Pell last week, and... Each time he comes out of those meetings, he says the same thing. It's it's almost like a special type of audio troll that he hasn't got the details, that he doesn't understand the details, that more details need to be released, and he doesn't understand anything at all about this. Now, in any walk of life, if you go to about 10 meetings or so and you're presented with all the information in all these different ways and everyone tries their best to accommodate you and then you walk away saying that you need more details and you don't understand it, well, People are going to start thinking that you're as thick as a brick or deliberately stupid, and I just think he's got to do a lot better than this. It's He's not coming across well. One of the things that a prime minister needs to have is an ability to be able to grasp the issues, think through the issues, understand the issues, argue for or against the issues, and appreciate both sides of the story. This is called critical thinking that is taught in most high schools. It's certainly taught at the police academy. It's taught at universities. It's taught at TAFE. It's even taught on YouTube. It's clear that he doesn't have the intellectual capacity or he doesn't want the intellectual capacity to understand it. This will not bode well for him as a future prime minister. 
which is probably why they're talking about getting rid of him now, that they want someone who at least looks like they understand rather than someone who is pushing the, I don't know, I must be very dumb. Because most people who've looked at it have agreed with it or if they've disagreed with it, they've disagreed with it for fairly specific and arguable reasons. There's not enough detail. Get shot down at the first mention of the 297-page report of the article by Marshall Langton in the Saturday paper of the various television programs that have devoted to looking at the voice and, and the details that we have. It's not a good look for him. And I suppose we should say at this point too that I think the Liberal Party is still in shock from losing the election and are grieving that loss. And that may be a whole lot of it, but they're not doing anything practical like restructuring, like going through and looking at procedures. They're getting good reports on why they lost, ignoring them, and then getting in not as good reports that play to what they want to have happened, not maybe what did happen. I suspect that they will keep Peter Dutton till just before the next election when maybe there's been a by-election where somebody more electable has been put into a seat somewhere. I still think they need to spend two terms at least in opposition and rebuild and restructure and rethink what they're about. There's also been a lot of talk about the honeymoon period that Anthony Albanese has had over the past nine months and the success of the Labor government. And and again, that's not just my opinion. That's something that's supported by opinion polls pretty much since June 2022. But politics is always relative. And conversely, it's been a nightmare for the Liberal National Coalition. All they do is whinge and complain, whinge and complain. And that's mainly coming from Peter Dutton, Paul Fletcher and Susan Lay. Sometimes in a political party, there is a belief that to achieve success, that what you have to do is do the opposite of what the government is doing and just keep making pot shots and pointing out their errors. And I think this is actually a big mistake. Now, if you look at the success of Labor state governments over the past seven or eight years, now generally they've been pushing a positive and progressive message. Now, there might be arguments about how progressive it's actually been or how positive it's all been, but if you compare with the messages in the Liberal and the National parties at the state level, It's a negative message, it's carping, it's whinging, it's a complaining culture. And they've lost badly in so many elections in Victoria, Queensland, West Australia, South Australia and federal area as well. And we keep pointing this out. They're still not getting the message. And a lot of political performance is like standard marketing. The business practice is to copy what all the successful businesses are doing. Then you offer a point of difference. It doesn't have to be completely different or offer the complete opposite to what you're competitors are offering but that's what you do you look at what's successful you copy that you refine it and then present it as something different to the public now what the liberal party is doing at the moment is practicing old style politics and hoping to get success in modern politics and it's just not working for them anywhere in australia and i'm very happy to keep offering free advice to the liberal party but there are whispers of change and it's just a little whisper at the moment but you also have to look at who's being very quiet at the moment because these are the people who are usually active behind the scenes and causing a little bit of mischief there. Angus Taylor has been very quiet. There's talk that Andrew Hastie is quietly building up his case behind the scenes and being based in West Australia, I'd say that his long-distance telephone bill is getting quite a bit high at the moment. But these continuous poor election results make MPs a little bit depressed and they start thinking about a change of course. And Liberal Party MPs might be a little bit more depressed after the New South Wales election next month, and desperate MPs will act desperately. Now, the Peter Dutton experiment hasn't worked out very well for the Liberal Party, and my feeling is that it's unlikely to work, and it's probably best 
to make a change before it ends up being too late to make that change. Timing is everything. I don't know that Andrew Hasty is the best choice. He's another right-wing Christian fundamentalist. I don't mean that as a term of abuse. I mean that as terms of description. I don't think he's as extreme as Scott Morrison was, but he's maybe a little bit too marginal in his thinking to be successful. Angus Taylor has absolutely no chance. He is more moderate, presumably, than Hasty and Dutton, but there is way too much of the stench of corruption around him, whether justified or not. He was touted as a future Prime Minister till Watergate hit. Until then, he was considered perhaps a future leader of the party. Now, he's very lucky to have pre-selection. So I think he can try his best, but if he gets in, it will be as disastrous, if not more disastrous, than keeping Dutton on. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.